Teachers have a tough job. They face so many obstacles from students, parents, colleagues, administrators, from themselves. And yet, teachers find so many ways to craft beautiful, transformative relationships that lead to learning, inspiration, and joy. This is the Ready to Teach podcast, and unlike most of the decisions being made in schools, this podcast is made for teachers by teachers. Let's get ready to teach. Hello, listeners. Welcome to our 12th episode of the Ready to Teach podcast. I'm here today with our weekly guest, Tracy Woodham, who is joining us from the other side of the country in California. Can I say Northern California? You can. Excellent. Uh, And she is here to talk about uh, a lot of topics with us. And Tracy has had uh, a really... Uh, unique shoot I'm catching myself as an English teacher saying really unique and realizing how redundant it is I'm very sorry Uh, but she has had a a unique journey uh, in her teaching experience Uh, we were actually colleagues once here near the eastern shore in Maryland now she's in California teaching a very different group of students but I'm really excited to hear everything she has to say Tracy so much thank you so much for being here with us No problem. Thank you for starting the dialogue. Um, This is my favorite thing to do, is to talk about education, and what's super rare is to um, find someone who wants to listen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm um, I'm very very excited to be able to just talk about the subject we both love. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun over the last 10, 11 episodes just to, to talk shop with other teachers. So... Speaking of, last episode, uh, actually, my wife was the guest on the show as a, as a school social worker, and we were talking about building solid relationships with students and just getting in the right mindset at the beginning of the school year about students, like trusting students and their families and valuing their experience. And I, in my experience, I've often gone into the school year sort of preparing myself for kids that you know quote unquote know nothing and then I'm going to inspire them and teach them and they're going to learn all of the things and you know they're, they're going to start at zero and then learn all the things and it's going to be amazing uh, but we were just talking before the show here about uh, you, the students that you work with now actually come in expecting that or like feeling like they already know a lot and they come in expecting an A and and, and they really do they want to feel like the 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 education they're getting is competitive they want to be challenged um i definitely had students who uh you know we had a lot of um and i had to kind of shut it down this comparing of grades and, you know, and, and, and how do we get the focus back on intrinsic motivation when there is so much on the line for these kids, um, from their point of view, um, in my area, it's this sort of Stanford or bus race to Stanford. Um, we talked about the tragedy that you might but they do, they come in and they want to be challenged. They, I, 
if you offer extra credit, every student will take you up on the extra credit, regardless of how, um, you know, my test corrections, even if it's multiple choice to get one point back, you have to write a paragraph that I find acceptable. You know, it's grammatically correct. It's been proofread and it's substantive and, um, and kids will do it for five points, write five paragraphs, you know, five points, not on their whole grade, like on a quiz grade, you know, um, to bring them up from a 92 to a 97. Wow. So, I don't yeah. think I've ever taught, like, I've never had a student do extra credit whose grade was not below a 75, I don't think. Oh, it's tricky, too, because um, if you do give a challenging quiz and a couple kids might get a C, um, and you offer some sort of, you know, if you do corrections, this is how many points you can get, kids will do the math and say, well, that's not fair because if I got a C, I could get more points than this B that I did get. And you know what I mean? Like they just... choose their decimal. Wow. I actually had a student come and have me make a correction in the grade book for, I think, a point two percentage that she wanted added to her score. And I added it, did nothing to her grade, but like she was going to follow through and follow up. And that was her point two percent. And she earned it, and she got it. Um, but that 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 was new for me to come into an environment where kids are so um, so competitive and so hard on themselves. Um, nice. I had to push back against it, and um, you know, it was my first year in a new school. But some of the things that I did, um, I created for lo- for big projects. I created something called a soft deadline, um, where it is due within this window of time for full credit. After that, you know, it gets a timeliness reduction. Right. Um, but this idea that everything has to be turned in, that, you know, on one day, blah, 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 by midnight, I, I usually would say any time between, you know, Friday morning and Monday, end of the school day, that's the period it has to be turned in because you have so many kids taking every AP under the sun even the most responsible and organized kids are going to feel the stress of that deadline. And I do not want students in my classroom who've stayed up all night writing my essay. I can get it tomorrow. Like it's, it's okay. Clearly you you've shown in, in talking about this tragedy of the a minus and the soft deadline that you're a teacher who's very in tune with and cares about your students, emotional health, especially in this very competitive, I would also imagine high stress, high anxiety environment. How do they react to that soft deadline? Um, it took so, it took a while, but like, and this is, a, I hope you don't take this as braggy. Um, but by the end of it, I had kids, kids who take every AP and just, you know, um, I got cards that said, you totally turned my attitude about English around. Like, kids didn't know English could be fun. Um, They didn't – I appreciate how you saw each of us as people, not just as students. And I think that – it took a while. This was my favorite one. It's at the Scarlet Letter, and a kid said, Scarlet Letter that I give to you to stand for what the townspeople came to believe it stood for, able. Because the kids did realize that – we were doing a lot of project-based learning. We were taking longer on units than t- other teachers. We had different goals. And um, and kids were like, are, are, 
are we behind? We, you know, just, you know, worry that they're, you know, every moment is being totally utilized for their benefit. And um, this kiddo was one of them uh, who always, you know, she was like, these soft deadlines, people should just get it down. <laughs> um, she had very exacting standards for herself and everyone around her. Yes. Um, and she came around and, you know, and then I also have, I have in the classroom, not only do I have, you know, these high achieving kids, I have high achieving kids who have learning differences, but they're still very high achieving and they are just as competitive. And then I also had in one class, I had three students who were all like brand new from Israel, like learning English and speaking English every day in a new country. And this is in uh, high school. In high school. Wow. Yeah. And um, so, so to try to meet all the different needs and be, ch- so my biggest challenge was I've always been great with the scaffolding for the kiddos who, who learn differently um, and take different routes to get to the knowledge. But the area I personally seek to improve after being in this environment is how to meaningfully differentiate to the kids who are the sort of high flyers. Um, but I also do want to bring back that intuition piece because sometimes what you get with these high flyers are these kids who know, you know, sort of the brass tacks, what you need to do to get an A, but what you lose with this pace and this drive is that time and space for original thought. And I try to tell my kiddos, if you never have time to take a breath, you lessen your ability to be creative, to come up with a really original thesis statement, to make meaning of your learning. Um, and I, I think that the way that I wanted my students to, to really engage and connect with what they were learning took more time. And it was something that I don't think that I think it was a little bit new in this environment and it was, it created a lot of work for me. My, I don't know if you remember my sketchbook projects, you know, which is fine when you have 10 kids in a classroom, but when you have multiple sections of almost 20 kids and you do these, you know, project based things, the grading and the amount of planning and upkeep becomes very, very high. Um, This year felt like my first year of teaching. Um, my first year of teaching, I was teaching in a school that, you know, was a historically failing school. I came in with a program like Teach for America, the Baltimore Teaching Residency. Um, I was teaching my first year in new school, and I was doing grad school at the same time. I was working 18-hour days. This year felt similar to that wow. in some way. It was good. It was growing. But you're making mistakes, you know, right. and, and you're you're – your learning in real time. At this point, we transition slightly to how Tracy models problem solving and community building as a teacher of students who are all about the final product and just getting it done. I'm a very democratic teacher in general. Um, I really believe that everyone counts and everybody has equal access to have a voice in the classroom as long as, as it's respectful, you know, discourse. That kids who learn how to negotiate do score higher on those standardized tests that mean a lot to some people. Um, Kids who learn to negotiate do better in life. They have more agency. They have more buy-in. 
So I run a very democratic classroom, you know, lots of, you know, this is what's planned for this unit. We can do this piece now and do the next piece next week, or we can flop up. And the kids have, have agency in that. My 11th graders loved it. My ninth graders who are used to a lot more structure, that was a little bit messier to model for them what it really looks like to have a, have a really democratic classroom. And um, the first piece of that is full transparency from the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, admitting if you've made a mistake, talking out loud. You know, when I was when I was trying to get, deal with the debacle of, you know, kids who got a C want a chance to get extra credit, but how do I do that? That's fair to the kids who got a B. You know, I would have those conversations with the group. Um, and my school is really good. Every class really models the Socratic sort of method of discussion. So our students really do know how to have appropriate academic discourse about topics that can be a little sensitive. What I always go back to about education is Paul Tuff's um, How Children Succeed or What Makes Children Succeed. Um, It's a wonderful read. It's really well-researched, but it comes up with this thing that most of us know intuitively that the things that make kids succeed are experience with failure, learning resiliency, resourcefulness, grit, all of those sort of skills, um, and that that was true regardless of um, adverse childhood events, uh, that it was that actually the kids who were more vulnerable were the kids who've ne- who are, had been sort of protected or coddled or hadn't experienced failure and then get to college their first year and have no idea how to um, find resources or pull themselves up from something that didn't go right. I really think that if you want kiddos to get value from education, it has to focus on learning more than content knowledge. You know, I more than you know, I, I'm not interested in education. I'm interested in in learning. Um, and how empowering that can be for students. So can I can I interrupt and just ask you that that difference between learning and content knowledge? I feel like some teachers, maybe some more old-fashioned teachers, would say, "What the difference between learning and content knowledge? Like content knowledge is what we learn. What's the difference? So what what are you classifying as learning versus content knowledge?" Um. So what I what I classify as content knowledge is um, usually begotten by memory and narrow focus on a topic where a student becomes an expert at that topic. And that can be super empowering for kiddos. That's why we do fifth grade, you know, book reports and science fairs and things like that. Um, but in this day and age where there is so much information, um, it's, it's becoming not just, you know, not, it's not just that I think learning is more important. It's becoming less possible, I think, to truly be an expert because every field is changing all the time. And what our students need is, are the skills to be able to research, to find, you know, verifiable research-based, you know, evidence for what, what they're learning about or what they're writing about. Um, it's, it's application of skills, uh, you know, um, and it's, it's focused much more on the process. 
than on the end result. Um, so yeah. if I can, if I could sort of tie this back to the kids, this new population that you've been working with, who you know, for whom an A minus is a tragedy. How how did you get them to focus on that that process and that learning, or or what are the ways that you've done it throughout your career also to like get kids to focus on on the learning instead of the content? Number one, really um, insisting on office hours. Um, if kiddos want to talk about a grade, I take the topic off the grade and focus it on the work and. And, you know, interesting ways they can deepen their skills or show their knowledge better. Um, and having those opportunities to work one-on-one with kiddos, that's really helpful. Um, and the other piece is that, I, you know, a few things are very true about all students, regardless of race, um, socioeconomic, whatever. First of all, you know, students are people. All, all students, all young people, if they can they will. Students want to learn. If they can do it, they will do it. Um, so, so it's finding out if they're, you know, if there is a problem, how to help them so that they can. Because once they can, my experience is they will. Um, and um, and remembering that bringing in lots of multimedia type. When I read, when we read um, *The Awakening* uh, by Kay Chapin, um, I brought in a Jim Crow racist memorabilia documentary because there's so much casual racism in the book, um, and it just, you know, giving kids different windows and sort of feeding that insatiable curiosity that's in all of us to get them to care. And so I, I would have to find lots of little carrots. Some of my kiddos, I can tell you, they're my social justice kiddos. Every time I give five essay prompts, they're going to choose the one that's most related to matters of social justice. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, so 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 bringing in lots of different ways for kids to interact so and what you, they're whispering. And in, in this process, you clearly are learning a lot about your students. You, know, you just talked about your students that you know are very concerned about social justice, and so you can always have a prompt for them, what are, you know, a, an administrator that, that we shared at our school uh, has used the phrase for me that uh, we, the best teachers become students of their students. So what are, what are some of the ways that now in your very high energy or, or in like high stress competitive environment that you study your own students and get to know them and learn what they're going to be interested in and you know what it's going to take to really pique their own curiosity and original thinking i don't know i don't there there's no magic to it and there's no you know i had a student i was sure just hated me he was so quiet in my class when i called him he was very you know closed off um and one day i saw him talking to a friend in class when he was supposed to be doing something about a code, something to do with code, um, some project they were working on. These kids, we have a 3D uh, printer lab, and our kids in ninth grade are writing code. I mean, it's wow. incredible. They're so much smarter than me, right? So anyway, I just asked a question. 
that's so interesting. I don't know anything about this. And he was able to be an expert and share it with me. It took, I don't know, five minutes. That kid started coming to my office hours. That kid made these leaps and bounds with his writing. He started sharing in class without being called on. That's a cool story. Huh? I just said that's a cool story. Like, I mean, just, just that one small act outside of your own classroom walls would have such a dramatic impact. You know, I, I, I myself sometimes succumb to the temptation of once the students are out of my door, I just want to close the door and have just, you know, a few minutes of quiet to myself, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but there's just so much rapport and, and respect and connection and, and relationships that can be built outside of our own classroom walls as tempted as we are to, you know, nest in them. And I'll also tell you one thing I learned in teaching is that um, it's so much less complicated than we want to make it. Um, I've always had an open door and kids will often, regardless of what school I'm in, find them, their way to my classroom um, to hang out, to work on something for another class, whatever, in a free period. And, um, you know, kids will come in and they'll, they'll, they'll be griping about something or complaining about something. And what I learned long ago is if you want the kids to feel like they can talk to you and it's a safe space, they don't really need your input. They just want to vent. They don't need you to solve their problem. They don't need you to, you know, my cell phone got taken away by so-and-so. Oh, that stinks. Like that's, that's what, and suddenly they're just, they, they want to talk and you have more of that free flow of dialogue, you know, by just almost parroting. It almost feels like cheating, you know, just being like, uh-huh, oh, that sounds frustrating, you know, but just letting them know, mm-hmm. number one, you're a human being. Number one, I value who you are as a human being. And, you know, we're all different and that's something to celebrate. And you know so many things I don't know, you know, my kiddo who... Um, was the, the student who came literally two weeks before school started from Israel, speaking, you know, Hebrew every day, suddenly is in a completely speaking English environment. You know, he had such a, can you imagine that challenge? As a 36-year-old, I would have been, I don't know, it, it, I, it would have felt so hard. And this kiddo, he just, had this determination and this great attitude and I would always just point out like kiddo not only are you brilliant in math and coding and all that but I'm telling you most adults would not be able to handle everything you've handled this year and I want you to know that I see it and I respect it and he didn't really want a lot from me with the social emotional stuff but I think knowing that I saw him be that man in the arena daring greatly every day doing something hard counted for him that i saw it and i noticed it and i commented on it yeah, and you you, um, aff- you affirmed that what he was going through was was hard and you weren't making it like harder for him you weren't you know trying to you know hold him down but you were just saying hey like you're you're working really hard and i see it and you're awesome yeah and he was actually a kiddo who would turn down things i would do you know like i would say you know, you can use the No Fear Shakespeare. You can absolutely do that. I realized that not only are you translating from Hebrew to English, but from English to Shakespearean language. And he was really about challenging himself. And, you know, I'll let you know when I need, you know, 
more help. But if I can do it on my own, I'm going to do it on my own. Wow. I'm going to do it just like everyone else. Like, you know, um, your, your, the story, this is a little bit of a digression, but your, your story before about parroting students' concerns back to them, you just remind me of something that uh, a mentor of mine in college and back in teacher school used to say, which is the, the power of the word O. And just like, <laughs> like, oh, but Mr. Tommy, uh, I don't know where my cell phone is. Oh, yeah, I think I, I may have left it in the cafeteria. Oh, I guess I should go look in the cafeteria. Okay, like problem solved, and like, and <laughs> that's all. That's all it took. Yeah, and actually, the kid feels better because they've now solved their own problem. Right. I'm all about empowering students to find what's already in them. Like that's kind of where I come from. I don't come in where like I'm going to fill you with all this knowledge. I'm going to wake you up to who you are and what your capabilities are, and I'm going to expose you to a lot of interesting stuff. Here are the takeaways from this week's episode. One, show value for students' mental and emotional well-being. Two, one way to do this is through having soft deadlines or deadline windows so that students can learn to manage their own time and their own stress levels effectively. Three, moving quickly through content can prevent students from having the time and space to have original creative thoughts. Sure, there's time for memorization practice and analysis practice, and, and you need to have the ability to perform in a high-stakes, stressful environment, but we also need time to pursue our own curiosity and our own original thinking. Four, when a student needs to talk, sometimes they don't need our input. They just need someone to hear them process while they work out problems on their own. Five, finally, at risk of stating the obvious, showing interest in students' successes outside our own classrooms can go a long way toward developing positive, trusting relationships with students. And it would be easy to tack on to that number five, that developing those positive, trusting relationships can then pay dividends in students' engagement in our own classroom. And that's definitely a positive and, and something that we hope for for those students that we connect with through sporting events or talent shows or just in the hallways or through clubs. But really, it shouldn't be transactional. It shouldn't be, well, I invest in you, therefore you have to invest in me or you should be more engaged in my classroom. We're really showing that interest because we care about students and we want them to know that we value them as a person and that we are people, that we are humans too. And that's where the trust begins. That's where we can really make an impact and impact students' lives outside of our own classroom in the next year and in college and in life beyond. And you know that's how teachers become the ones that 35-year-olds talk about as the first one that got them interested in computer science or biology or literature or, or whatever it is. So, okay, sorry, off my soapbox. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope as you are transitioning back to your schools, your campuses, your classrooms, that you are excited about the school year and that you are anxious, good anxious, to meet your students, to see their faces, to say hello for the first time, and to begin the journey that this year will be. Thank you again to Tracy and to everyone. Again, thank you for listening. 
and until next week, rest up and be well.